You know what it is. It's the Non-Believer Bible Club. During our last episode, something crazy happened to the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. A pillar of fire came down from God and burned them alive. But before we get to that, reminder of where we are. At this point, God has psychologically tricked the Israelites into a sacrificial cult so that they can imbue the genuinely helpful life rules he's given them with a meaning they understand and respect. Remember, they are, for the first time in hundreds of years, out and away from Egypt. They still have the culture and customs of Egypt. So God's trying to work with that. Now, part of this involves the tabernacle, a man-made tent with a room inside of a room where God lives in an empty space between the wings of two golden angels on the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Outside, there is a court with a brazen laver the priests used to wash and purify themselves, a brazen altar to burn sacrificed animal flesh on, like the ancient Greeks, because it rises up to heaven and it smells really good, so God likes that. Back inside the tent, the priests light a menorah, they eat the barbecue from the daily sacrifices, But really, it's like their holy duty. They eat the showbread set aside for them on the table of the showbread and light an incense mixture of flowers and resins like myrrh and frankincense on the altar of incense. Now, according to the law, Leviticus 16, 12 through 13, and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. Now this is referring to the high priest, who's the only one who's really ordained to do this. They take a censer into the Holy of Holies and wave it around before the Ark of the Covenant. And God likes this. But if you do it wrong, you die. Leviticus 10, 1 through 2. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. We talked a little bit about this last episode, but I didn't realize, (laughs) stop me if this sounds familiar, I didn't realize the centuries of debate and thought that has gone into this one occurrence. So, what exactly happened? And what have people thought happened for hundreds of years? That is the subject of today's pre-Bible Club discussion. Pre-Bible Club discussion. All right. (laughs) Now, God has only directly killed somebody a handful of times in the Old Testament. And I'm not talking about the flood. That seems really collective, sort of uh, all the bad eggs in one basket kind of thing. It's a different vibe when God singles you out specifically, individually, for death. I'm looking at Ur for being wicked, no other reason given. I'm looking at Onan for being a pull-out king. An angel of the Lord even went after Moses before he got foreskin thrown at him. I love that story. So whatever Nadab and Abihu did puts them in a class at least as bad as Ur or Onan 
or Moses that one time? Speaking of, let's see what Moses said immediately after the deaths of Nadav and Abihu. Leviticus 10.3 Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Pretty cold. What could someone say to you after God kills your sons? And you're like, oh, okay. Let's break down this passage. First, the term, in them that come nigh me. This is a term referring to priests specifically. Exodus 19.22 And let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Good advice. Numbers 16.5 And he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will shew who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. The importance of the priesthood is in the fact that they come near to God. When Nadab and Abihu are struck down, they are standing in the Holy of Holies. They have come before the Lord with this strange fire. When Moses says that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, he's specifically saying God will be sanctified through the priests, and before all the people I will be glorified. So the easy way to look at this is God is counting on the sanctity of the priests in order to show his glory. And if they are not sanctified, the people will know God's glory in another way. Death. But it is the manner of how Nadav and Abihu were not sanctified, not fit to wave their censers before the Lord that has caused so much speculation. The words are just too vague. Is it the strange fire that they bring before the Lord? Their sin was in fire, and so they were punished with fire. Maybe. Or does Leviticus 10, 8-9, following immediately after, provide another reason? And the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine, nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Nadab and Abihu were drunk? I made a joke about this in the previous episode, but you remember what happened the last time sons and fathers got drunk in the same tent. Could this be the reason why they were killed? Taking notes from the incident of Nadav and Avihu from the Torah.com, classical rabbis point to an incident in 2 Samuel 6, which concerns the moving of the Ark of the Covenant outside of Jerusalem to the site of the future temple. As it's being transported, the cattle carrying the Ark of the Covenant trip, and the Ark is about to fall when an Israelite named Usa reaches out and steadies the Ark with his hand so that it may successfully be brought into the city of David for the glory of God. <laughs> Dead. Maybe Nadab and Abihu weren't drunk. Maybe they had the best intentions, like Uzzah surely did. But nonetheless, Uzzah was not a priest, and he was not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And God cannot let anyone survive in his presence who is impure 
I've barely scratched the surface with these explanations. They get even deeper and more complex. For instance, Moses said, ah, this is what God meant when he said, I will be sanctified in those that come nigh me. But he doesn't actually say that anywhere in the text before. This leads to an entirely different school of speculation, where they say, oh, he's referring to something God told him in the oral Torah. That is, when Moses is on Mount Sinai, God gives him the Torah, which Moses shares. Then God also passes down the oral Torah, only spoken knowledge. It's the secret knowledge, the cheat codes of the Bible. So knowing this, scholars suggest, oh, that's when he said that. Another idea is that when Moses sees what has happened, he says, ah, this is what he meant by the action. And Moses is simply translating what they see after the fact. In ancient Hebrew, God is said to explode upon Uzzah. In the King James Version, the term is to break forth, as appears in Exodus 19.22-24. through 24. And let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, ah, those who come near, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mount and sanctify it. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. The only problem is he's talking about approaching Mount Sinai. He isn't saying anything about touching the Ark of the Covenant or waving a censer before the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. These may not seem like big differences, but this is a religion, Judaism, where as a rule, you cannot dip your finger in blood and put it on each of the four horns on the altar of sacrifice. You have to dip, wipe, fresh dip, wipe, fresh dip. So understandably, opinion has been mixed and speculated upon for generations. Welcome to the conversation. So although how exactly Abihu and Nadab sinned, whether they meant to, and why their transgression deserved death, may not be fully understood. Perhaps the meaning was lost, or it was simply meant as a warning to cross all your I's and dot all your T's. This incident falls right in line with other impenetrable acts committed by the Lord. To again quote from Harold Bloom, as I've done before, here's an excerpt from his reaction of that one time God tried to kill Moses. I take it that Jay, the Yahwist, or Jay writer, wanted us to see yet once more that total identification with the will of Yahweh is impossible. He is not predictable. When thinking about the divine in relation to us, I think it's important to remember that if God is indeed extrasensory, beyond human, then it, like nature, should be unpredictable. It should strike out at random as much as we try to understand it. One of my favorite realities about God, as described by the Old Testament, is that God cannot be comprehended by man. At the same time, there's another reality. In the Old Testament, the character of God, if you will, consistently tells people to stay away from him or her or what? Death always follows swiftly for any who come near to the Lord. 
This happens in Exodus 34, 18, when Moses asks God to show him his face. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will shew mercy on whom I will shew mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So, what to make of all of this? To understand the deaths of Nadib and Abihu, Abab and Abib, Nadab and Abihu, we have to understand God. And that's the paradox. We see both extreme consistency on one side, and on the other side, impenetrable unpredictability. Anyone who comes near God, who is impure, will die. Even Moses, the guy who, after the golden calf incident, God considered making the template for the new generation of his people. Well, he flirted with the idea, briefly. He had an itchy trigger finger, and Moses was able to talk him down. But, at the same time, Onan didn't want to get his wife pregnant, and God killed him for that. That's why I like the nature analogy. A tornado doesn't care about your house when it destroys it. But the natural world is also very beautiful. The important thing here is this. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to what you want, the more you have to look at your own impurities, at your own faults. You may think you want something, but maybe you'll find out the closer you get to it, the worse your own problems are. You have to be pure before that which is most holy. Sometimes humans are bad at being able to tell how much they can take. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for our very best. What I am saying is the closer we get to what we want, the worse we'll make it for ourselves if we aren't ready for it. Because that real good, that good good, is hard to pin down. It may accept you and let you stare at its back parts one second and strike you down the next. The only thing you can do is keep yourself pure and receptive. Nadab and Abihu went before the Lord, and they waved their censers around, and they got rocked. When you're dealing with something that is that big, that powerful, and that beyond yourself, you can be allied with it, you can worship it, but you can't be equal, or else this shit happens. Anyway. In a boring book full of laws, Nadab and Abihu come out of nowhere to make it just a little bit more interesting. Oh, I totally missed the chance to say that the strange fire from the strange things that they burned before the Lord that he didn't want them to burn was probably weed. Oh, well, maybe next time. For now, joineth me, my creeping things. You're going to miss the party. Come on. We're reading Leviticus. Chapter 14 And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. 
he shall be brought unto the priest. And the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command to take for him, that is to be cleansed, two birds alive and clean, and cedarwood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, and the cedarwood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and shall dip them, and the living bird, in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon him, that is to be cleansed from the leprosy, seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. And he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, and shave off all his hair, and wash himself in water, that he may be clean. And after, page turn. Oh, page 100. All right, 100 pages in. This, is, this isn't even close. It's like a thousand pages in this. All right. And after that, he shall come into the camp and shall tarry abroad out of his tent seven days. But it shall be on the seventh day that he shall shave all his hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows. Cheese again. Even all his hair he shall shave off and he shall wash his clothes. Also he shall wash his flesh in water and he shall be clean. Now, if you've made it this far, you know, there's a lot of this stuff coming up. If you want to skip this, totally up to you. If you're in it for the long haul, like I am, <laughs> you are in the right place. Now, before I continue, bird ritual, that's really cool. I mean, it's kind of messed up, but you see this a lot. I've uh, made comments on it, how whenever there's some kind of ritual of cleansing or something is to be taken away, usually something like the scapegoat, which is probably going to come up. One of the goats is sacrificed and then the other goat is let go. But with this bird, using the bird who has been dipped in the blood, I guess they grab it, then they sprinkle the dipped bird on the guy seven times and then let the bird go. That's a, <laughs> that's a cool ritual. It's messed up, but I mean, I mean, they didn't know. It's, that was normal for that time. Just what a thing to see. Anyway, I just like the ending, I guess. Verse 10. And on the eighth day, he shall take two he lambs without blemish, and one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish, and three tenth deals of fine flour for a meat offering, mingled with oil, and one log of oil. And the priest that maketh him clean shall present the man that is to be made clean, and those things before the Lord, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall take one he lamb, and offer him for a trespass offering, and the log of oil, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall slay the lamb in the place where he shall kill the sin offering, and the burnt offering in the holy place. For as the sin offering is the priest's, so is the trespass offering, it is most holy. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering, and the priest shall put it upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. And the priest shall take some of the log of oil, and pour it into the palm 
of his own left hand. And the priest shall dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand, and shall sprinkle of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And of the rest of the oil that is in his hand shall the priest put upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot, and upon the blood of the trespass offering. And the remnant of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall pour upon the head of him that is to be cleansed. Nice. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. And the priest shall offer the sin offering and make an atonement for him that is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the meat offering upon the altar. And the priest shall make an atonement for him and he shall be clean. And after dinner. Okay, this is a really interesting ritual, so I just read it again. And I realized on verse 16, And the priest shall dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand, and shall sprinkle the oil, or shall sprinkle of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. So he's already killed the lamb. Oh, first of all, the he lamb, that's the trespass offering, right? And, and the log of oil, they are waved for a wave offering before they're killed. So he takes the lamb and he holds it in the air and he waves it around. And that's part of the offering while it's still alive. Then he kills it, sprinkles the blood, puts it on the right ear and the thumb and the toe of the guy. But then with the olive oil, or I know there's more stuff in it, myrrh or whatever. He sprinkles it before the Lord, which means that after all this, he goes back inside of the tent into the Holy of Holies. Then he sprinkles the oil in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And then he goes back out to finish the rest of the ritual. And then another thing, this is like a lot to explain, but these priests probably had this shit down. It's like lamb, wave, down, kill, blood, ear, thumb, right toe, into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the oil, back outside, ear, thumb, toe, burn it all. Like... (laughs) I'm not for the ritual slaughter of animals exactly, but I want to see this done. (laughs) Anyway, verse 21. And if he be poor and cannot get so much, then he shall take one lamb for a trespass offering to be waved to make an atonement for him and one tenth deal of fine flour mingled with oil for a meat offering and a log of oil and two turtle doves or two young pigeons such as he is able to get. And the one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. So I guess turtle doves or two young pigeons were a lot easier to come by than two lambs in the desert. And he shall bring them on the eighth day for his cleansing unto the priest, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And the priest shall take the lamb of the trespass offering and the log of oil, and the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall kill the lamb of the trespass offering, and the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering and put it upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed, that is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. And the priest shall pour of the oil into the palm of his own left hand, and the priest shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in the left hand seven times before the Lord. I like, I was like, okay, he'll do some of it is the the poor version. And the priest shall put of the oil that is in his hand upon the tip of the right ear 
of him that is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot, upon the place of the blood of the trespass offering. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall put upon the head of him that is to be cleansed to make an atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall offer the one of the turtle doves or of the young pigeons, such as he can get. Even such as he is able to get, the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering with the meat offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him that is to be cleansed before the Lord. This is the law of him in whom is the plague of leprosy, whose hand is not able to get that which pertaineth to his cleansing. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When ye become into the land of Canaan, which I give to you for a possession, and I put the plague of leprosy in a house of the land of your possession, and he that owneth the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, It seemeth to me, There is, as it were, a plague in the house. Then the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest go into it to see the plague, that all that is in the house be not made unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to see the house. First of all, not once during all of these rules has any mention of the promised land been made. Now, all of a sudden, God's going to be like, so when you guys are in Canaan, and (laughs) it's like, the next part of the journey. Just like teasing that. Like it's not going to happen in like 500 years or whatever. But I digress. Oh yeah. Also he says, when you become into the land of Canaan, which I give to you for a possession, and I put the plague of leprosy in a house. Taking responsibility for everything that happens, huh? So if leprosy appears anywhere, the idea is that, well, God put it there for a reason. Verse 37. And he shall look on the plague, and behold, if the plague be in the walls of the house with hollow strakes, greenish or reddish, which in sight are lower than the wall. Okay, I understand why this has to be communicated, because they're not living in proper houses yet. So addressing this does two things. One, it promises that eventually they're going to be living in houses. And two, it gives them the knowledge of how to do these things that they know how to do in the desert when they're in the promised land. Then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. And the priest shall come again the seventh day and shall look and behold, if the plague be spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take away the stones in which the plague is, and they shall cast them into an unclean place without the city. And he shall cause the houses to be scraped within round about, and they shall pour out the dust that they scrape off without the city into an unclean place. Jeez. And they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones. And he shall take other mortar and shall plaster the house. That's That looks like plaster. P-L-A-I-S-T-E-R. And if the plague come again and break out in the house, after that he hath taken away the stones, and after he hath scraped the house, and after it is plastered, then the priest shall come and look, and behold, if the plague be spread in the house, it is a fretting leprosy in the house, it is unclean. And he shall break down the house, the stones of it, and the timber thereof, and all the mortar of the house, and he shall carry them forth out of the city into an unclean place. 
Moreover, he that goeth into the house all the while, that it is shut up, shall be unclean until the even. And he that lieth in the house shall wash his clothes, and he that eateth in the house shall wash his clothes. And if the priest shall come in and look upon it, and behold, the plague hath not spread in the house. After the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean, because the plague is healed. Jeez, even houses can catch it. I didn't know that leprosy was so contagious it can fester on stone. And he shall take to cleanse the house two birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And he shall kill the one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. Ooh, let me guess what happens next. And he shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet and the living bird and dip them in the blood of the slain bird and in the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. And he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and with the running water and with the living bird and with the cedar wood and with the hyssop and with the scarlet. But he shall let go the living bird out of the city into the open fields and make an atonement for the house, and it shall be clean. This is the law for all manner of plague of leprosy and scall, and for the leprosy of a garment and of a house, and for a rising and for a scab and for a bright spot, to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy. Man, these priests had to do everything. They were the police, they were doctors, and priests, and judges. That is a full-time occupation. All right, two notes before we continue. One, because I was confused about the whole a house-catching-leprosy thing, other translations seem to indicate that this refers to a mold, or a mildew, a malignant mildew. And also the scarlet. What is the scarlet? According to other translations... It's a scarlet yarn, which is tied around the bird's tail feathers. Basically, when you tie the cedar wood and the hyssop together with the red string on the tail feathers, it kind of makes a brush that is dipped into the blood. We saw a similar use of hyssop in Exodus 12:22, And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Now this is, of course, describing the tenth plague and the Passover, which afforded the Israelites protection from it. Hyssop itself is an evergreen garden herb of the mint family. It has small purple flowers and has been popularly used in herbal medicine to help with digestive, intestinal problems, infection, poor circulation, skin problems, and other conditions. But there is no good scientific evidence to support these uses. Remember, just because it grows out of the ground doesn't mean eating it will make you better. <laughs> Thanks to WebMD.com. All right, chapter 15. And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue he is unclean. They're talking about some drippy. They're talking about bodily excretions. According to my Wycliffe Bible commentary, a running issue, zab in Hebrew, or discharge from the verb 
Zub, to flow. The discharge out of his flesh is taken to mean from the organs of generation. Oh, I think we know what that means. Although the exact nature of the disease discussed is not known. Cool. Because of his issue, he is unclean. And this shall be his uncleanness in his issue. Whether his flesh run with his issue or his flesh be stopped from his issue, it is his uncleanness. Every bed whereon he lieth that hath the issue is unclean. Everything whereon he sitteth shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth toucheth his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. I really like these cleanliness laws. Big on the cleanliness. And he that toucheth the flesh of him that hath the issue shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And if he that hath the issue spit upon him that is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And what saddle soever he rideth upon that hath the issue shall be unclean. Ugh. And whosoever toucheth anything that was under him shall be unclean until the even. And he that beareth any of those things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. Don't spit where he spit. Don't sit where he sit. And whomsoever he toucheth, it didn't have that last part. I just made that up. And whomsoever he toucheth that hath the issue and hath not rinsed his hands in water, he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. This is great. And the vessel of the earth that he toucheth, which hath the issue, shall be broken. And every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. Wow. And when he that hath an issue is cleansed of his issue, then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing, and wash his clothes, and bathe his flesh in running water, and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take to him two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, and come before the Lord unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and give them unto the priest. And the priest shall offer them, the one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord for his issue. And if any man's seed of copulation go out from him, then he shall wash all his flesh in water and be unclean until the even. (laughs) And every garment and every skin whereon is the seed of copulation shall be washed with water and be unclean until the even. Do you remember what happened to Onan for masturbating? They take jerking it very seriously in the Old Testament. The woman also, with whom man shall lie, with seed of copulation, they shall both bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the even. Bad, very bad. And if a woman have an issue, and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days, and whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the even. And everything that she lieth upon in her separation shall be unclean. Everything also that she sitteth upon shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. 
It's just a period, guys. I mean, it's good that they're washing everything, but... <laughs> and she shall be apart seven days. Ah, well, anyway. And whosoever toucheth anything that she sat upon shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And if it be on her bed or on anything whereon she sitteth, when, she, when he toucheth it, he shall be unclean until the even. And if any man lie with her at all, and her flowers be upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and all the bed whereon he lieth shall be unclean. Her flowers? Whoa. NIV says, If a man has sexual relations with her, and her monthly flow touches him. New Living Translation, And her blood touches him. English Standard, And her menstrual impurity comes upon him. But then King James, And if her flowers shed their petals upon him. This is like, you know people who can't say the word penis or vagina? If only they were as literary and eloquent as King James. Oh, side note, for committing this gross act presumptuously, both parties to it were visited with death. Cool. Very cool. Sex on your period? Death. Verse 25. And if a woman have an issue of her blood many days out of the time of her separation, or if it run beyond the time of her separation, all the days of the issue of her uncleanness shall be as the days of her separation, she shall be unclean. Every bed whereon she lieth all the days of her issue shall be unto her as the bed of her separation. And whatsoever she sitteth upon shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her separation. And whosoever toucheth these things shall be unclean and wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. But if she be cleansed of her issue, then she shall number to herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day, yup, she shall take unto her two turtles or two young pigeons. Man, something's got to die no matter what. And bring them unto the priest to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. My girl's out. It's time to kill stuff. And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her before the Lord for the issue of her uncleanness. Thus shall ye separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, that they die not in their uncleanness, when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. Woe. This is the law of him that hath an issue, and of him whose seed goeth from him, and is defiled therewith, and of her that is sick of her flowers, and of him that hath an issue of the man, and of the woman, and of him that lieth with her that is unclean. Chapter 16. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Ah, they remembered. When they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. 
and he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. This was kind of hard for me to follow at first, but I know so much about all their laws and all their rituals. I feel like you could just sub me in. I'm like, burnt offering? No? Wave? On it. Blood, dip, ear, thumb, toe. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. Ah, scapegoat time. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire, before the Lord, so in the Holy of Holies, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Man, the Ark of the Covenant must just been covered in animal blood and olive oil at all times. Now, this actually is a good time to bring up something that I almost mentioned in the introduction, one of the inconsistencies about the deaths of Nadib and Abihu, Nadab and Abihu, oh man, is that everything that dictates how the high priest must enter the holy place happens in chapter 16, but their deaths happen in chapter 10. This opens up a completely different can of worms that, yes, has been debated for hundreds and hundreds of years. Among many others, here are some ways to look at it. Either one, Moses is creating and interpreting the law as he goes. Two, he's remembering what God told him personally and then applying it after the fact. Or three, my personal favorite, there is no chronological order in the Torah. Okay, crash course on Jewish biblical exegesis. Go, 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 go. This oral Torah we keep talking about is written down and commented on in a document called the Mishnah. Now, the commentary on the Mishnah is called the Gemara, and the two of them together are collected in a book known as the Talmud. There are two major Talmuds, the Jerusalem Talmud and the more authoritative Babylonian Talmud, written a hundred years later, sometime around 500 AD. Now, in the Torah, the first verse of the first chapter of Numbers occurs one month after the first verse of chapter 9. To account for this, here is what is said in the Gemara of the Babylonian Talmud. There is no earlier and later, i.e., there is no absolute chronological order in the Torah, as events that occurred later in time can appear earlier in the Torah. So, because of this, an expression arose among rabbis. There is no early and late in the Torah. Just because the laws of how to correctly enter the tabernacle 
come after the deaths of Nadab and Abihu doesn't mean that it was kept from them. The Torah is perfect. In fact, it's your problem for expecting it to follow your silly chronological order. <laughs> I love that. Crash course done. 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 Okay, back to the book. Verse 15. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place, until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. It makes me wonder if there's some kind of stipulation like this. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in, he being the high priest, so that this is a way of explaining what exactly Nadab and Abihu did wrong. But by all accounts, and even in the Torah itself, the exact nature of their offense is not made clear. Verse 18, And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord, and make an atonement for it, and shall take of the blood of the bullock, and of the blood of the goat, and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it, with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, and put on his garments, and come forth and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward come into the camp. And the bullock for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. And he that burneth them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, 
and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. Page turn. Oh, this is the annual Feast of Atonement, by the way. And the priest, whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation, and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did, as the Lord commanded Moses. And here we will end our reading for today. That's a lot of Leviticus. I gotta admit, I'm getting into kind of a groove with this. Started re- <laughs> just hit a Leviticus wall when I started this. But now I'm starting to get a sense of what these guys were doing what the tabernacle is about, what the purpose of all of these laws and rituals are, at least as far as a non-practicing Gentile can 3,000 years later. Nice to come full circle with the beginning of chapter 16, mentioning Nadab and Abihu. If anything has been the most consistent in this book, is that humans try and fail and try and fail again. It's continuing to be a theme I think it's helpful for anybody trying and failing in their own life. Even the terminology, making an atonement for yourself, is something that I think a lot about. You kind of have to apologize for existing. But if you can do it, the world is yours. Remember Cain and Abel, sin lieth at the door, but you can master it. While watching the Israelites try to master themselves is enough to learn from for me. I hope you have enjoyed my creeping things. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Nonbeliever Bible Club. Adios.